Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television. I'm Josh Wiggler, your host here on Series Regular. And this week, we're taking a turn for the terrifying by discussing The Terror, the AMC horror anthology series currently in the midst of its second season. Originally starring Jared Harris and Kieran Hines, The Terror's first season took its cues from the Dan Simmons novel of the same name, which tells the true story of an 1840s expedition to the Arctic, one that ends very, very poorly for just about everyone trapped aboard the HMS Terror. I should probably say true-ish, because the real version of events most likely did not involve the man-eating spirit bear known as the Toonbok, but I suppose you never really know. Here's a taste of one of the Toonbok's grislier encounters in season one. saw the season, you surely remember the scene. No further spoilers from me, except for this. If you have not yet encountered season two of The Terror, you're probably wondering how another season of this brilliant series even exists. Well, if your hopes were suddenly raised thinking we would see more Toonbok action, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. I'm going to be unwell, gentlemen. Quite unwell, I expect. But here's the good news. For its second season, the terror leaves the literal terror behind in favor of a new terror, or an old terror, as it were. Season two is called The Terror Infamy. It's an original tale that explores very different horrors that are still very, very horrifying all the same. Set in the 1940s, Infamy focuses on Chester Nakayama, played by Derek Mio, a Japanese-American man whose visions of a bright future and his faith in his country are thoroughly tested due to the internment of Japanese-Americans, the ongoing terrors of World War II, and a deadly dose of ghost lore to boot. The new season co-stars George Takei as the elder statesman of his community. What's more, the legendary Star Trek icon serves as a creative consultant due to his own experience as a child during this dark period of American history, a dark period that is tragically all too relevant still today. The Terror Infamy airs Mondays on AMC at 9 p.m. Joining me for this week's series regular is Infamy co-creator and showrunner Alexander Wu to talk about the inception of the series, some of the plot developments thus far from the first two episodes that have already aired, and more. We'll get into that conversation momentarily, but first, here's a taste of what you're getting into when you tune into Infamy from AMC's own trailer for the season. Nothing in this world is an accident. There's always someone watching punishing there is something evil i can feel it we come all the way over the ocean but we are not safe you believe in bakemono shape-shifting spirits you ever get the feeling you're being watched Unfulfilled soul need body to occupy. Never used to believe in that old country stuff. Anywhere you go, 
Alex, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to get to dig into. Uh, I think that this is going to be the only time I say a real pleasure to dig into <laughs> the terror infamy, which is obviously dealing with a lot, a lot of heavy subject matter. It is, but I also want it to be accessible. And there's so many different ways into the show. You could want to approach it uh, wanting to see this period of history presented for the first time on the scale. You would be could be really interested in Asian representation on screen. Yep. Or you might just want a really good scare. Yeah. Any of those are totally, If you totally like ghosts, valid. you won't be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you just want a great ghost story, you, you, you'll get that too. So all those are completely valid. I think once you're in, I, I think uh, we, ha- we have the same goal in mind for everyone, and we can talk about that if so, you want. So what was your way in? When the tarot pinged on your radar, and this was something that you were going to get involved in, what was it that you accessed and spoke to you as, this is something that I want to devote so much of my life into, into telling this story? Well, you hit on something really interesting, which is that when Max Bornstein, my co-creator, first pitched the uh, it was his the pitch idea, originally, it was his right? pitch originally, and I was the beneficiary of his incredibly successful screenwriting career because he wasn't available to write the pilot or run the show. He did co-write episode six, and is an executive producer on the show. But uh, AMC approached me because I was uh, in the family and developing with them. And I was initially hesitant because uh, this is not the uh, historically the story of my family. I'm Chinese-American. I'm not Japanese-American. But what I discovered after meeting with some survivors of the internment, like George Takei and uh, a number of other people, and doing a deep dive into the history, I realized that this is the story of the Japanese Americans, but it's not exclusively a story for Japanese Americans. It's it's a story for anyone whose life has been touched or shaped by the immigrant experience, which quite frankly is just about everyone in this country. And that's where I plugged into it because I I was a playwright before I started working in TV. And uh, all of my plays were about themes of Americanness and what it means to be American from an Asian American perspective, usually told from some sort of strange offset. And here was the first opportunity I've had in uh, 16 years to do it on television. So I plugged into it as an immigrant story. And a lot of that you see, I think, in the uh, Chester Henry relationship. There's a lot of that story. The tension between the generations is something that that taps into uh, my own life very personally. As you were starting to dig into this, this season is obviously disconnected from the first season of The Terror. It's a totally different story. If you you love the first season, you'll get none of it (laughs) in the second. Well, I was wondering if there was anything tonally that you looked to see if there was anything consistent that you wanted to adapt from the first season. If you looked at the first season, just as as far as crafting the type of story that you were going to tell here. I mean, that first season of The Terror is slow mounting horror. You know, like it's just like escalating in in intention. Was there anything like that that you you looked at as you were building out infamy. Well, I, I love Terror One, and uh, and Dave Kajanich and uh, and Suhu uh, gave me a good deal of guidance going into this project, and we do share a good deal of DNA in uh, in the themes of the story. You know, this is they're both stories about a group of people who are in a place where they are alien, where they are not wanted, and they can't get out. And they can't get out, and the horror is as much human as it is supernatural. Right. So. There are similarities uh, there. And you have a giant man-eating bear on the show, which is a little <laughs> bit of we, a spoiler. And we have a giant man-eating. Yeah, uh, we have a t- there's, there's no Toonbach. Uh, th- 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 there's there's a. Uh, 
a bit of what is a sort of in joke is that the uh, the name of the boat uh, is the tarot. Yeah, I saw that. I noted that. I thought that was great in, in the beginning. And of course, it's a historical story told with the uh, you know a genre vocabulary. But apart from that, I mean, obviously the subject matter is different. The cast is different. The writing team is different. Uh, the only people we carried over from the first season were our uh, production designer Jonathan McKinstry and our researcher Daniel Roderick. Yeah, the first scene is. Is so jarring and gets you in so quickly uh, with with some of the visual language that we're going to be experiencing across the show. Cracking bones, a woman dying in the daylight by her own hand. How did that come together and how much of a tone setter was that for you in terms of crafting this first scene for the greater story that you were going to be telling? It was really important for me because I think that's the calling card of the show. You know instantaneously this is the show you're going to get. So we wanted to uh, present it as meticulously composed and lovely and poetic and lyrical, but at the same time horrifying and uh, and and creepy and disturbing and, you know, all the elements, the sound design and the score, the extraordinary cinematography that, uh, that uh, John Conroy and uh, our director, Joseph Lodica, brought to that scene. An exceptional performance, too, from a, <laughs> a yes. character who dies in the, Immediately. In, in, in the first scene from uh, Yuki Morita. All that uh, came together to to sort of establish to set the kind of world we're in and also a highly subjective style of storytelling this is as much in the sound as anything else you know you're obviously you know the shots are pretty tight on her but uh, as she's you know sticking that hair stick in her ear I wanted the score not to serve as a backdrop so much to that but as an evocation of what's going on inside her brain right that that, that is all mixed up that level of disturbance and when it finally penetrates and severs her her brainstem the sound goes out entirely yeah. <laughs> it just cuts out so i think it also sets up a very subjective style of storytelling you're going to be in this is what it's saying yeah you're going to be in the skin of these characters yeah. yeah there are multiple types of horror at play in the terror infamy one of the most notable ones obviously is that this is telling the story of japanese american internment in a, in a way that hasn't been told before in long form television format talk to me a bit about that about what you've what you've discovered in exploring that subject matter what you've discovered in filming that subject matter and dramatizing that subject matter this is the first opportunity that anyone has had to tell this story in a long form you know there have been movies it's the, the internment has been addressed in episodes uh, of tv shows but the experience, I think, maps out best on a long form because it lasted for years. It's not a single emotional experience. So a movie, even a good movie about the internment, of which there have been uh, several, you know, is a single emotional experience. You watch it and it's over. You can wash your hands of it. You can go home. You can never think about these people again, which is not the experience of the internment. It was not just over. Uh, it wasn't even over when the camps closed. That's one thing that was very important to George to and very important for us to show that it wasn't just over and everyone can go back to their lives when the camps finally did close toward the end of the war. When the camps closed, the United States was still at war with Japan, and the Japanese Americans were going back to a country that was still hostile to Japanese Americans. And 
they had lost all their possessions and their homes and they were given a one-way ticket to wherever they wanted to go and $25 in reparations right. So per person. So, you know, that, if anything, was more difficult. And uh, George recalls as an eight-year-old that that was the most miserable part of that experience for him in the moment. So, you know, the, the experience of the uh, of the internment, I think, uh, you know, is better suited for an experience where you have seven days between episodes to think about it, to imagine what the characters are going through, to talk about them with your real friends, yeah. to worry about them, to be happy for them, to be angry with them, what have you. I think uh, emotionally it's a better shape for uh, to, to dealt this story. And emotionally, I think the uh, genre toolbox that we're using is ideal for telling the story because there's a danger with a period piece for the viewer to feel at a safer move. You know, you don't, it's 75 years ago. You, know, you, can, you can feel like it's kind of a, a museum piece, you know, behind a pane of glass somewhere. And it's dealing with things that are completely unfamiliar to what we are dealing with <laughs> today. Think, yeah, the, thank goodness. So immigrants have nothing to worry ago, about. Uh, yeah. Right. I wanted to feel really present, you know, for reasons that I think you can probably uh, glean. And one of the best ways of doing that, by no means is our uh, show the first one to ever do that, but but by using the the, the tools of uh, of horror, you can make the viewer feel all those things that you love when you have from your favorite horror movie, but use those as an access point into the emotional lives of the terror of the historical experience. Yeah. You mentioned George, George Decay, legendary, legendary within the universe of the show as well. I'm going to, I'm going to botch exactly what his title is, but he's the, the boxing champion. Tuna boxing champion of San Pedro. Which is fantastic. And I will, I hope that there is a bottle episode about that deeper into the season. <laughs> I have not seen it yet in what I have encountered, but having, having him involved, not just as a, a screen legend, but somebody who, who lived through this must be crucial to, to building out the reality of it. I'd love to learn a little more about your collaboration. And also, I know that the the story goes that you almost literally knocked on his door asking him to be involved. I did. I did literally knock on his door, but I did not literally knock on his door cold. First, yes. No, no. <laughs> I, I think he likes to tell the story that I just kind of showed up at his house. And now, like Being I, a little dramatic. No, perhaps. no. I mean, we do live, as it turns out, very, very close to each other. But I did not know exactly where his house was. And I wouldn't have just walked right up anyway. Right. I, no, I did call ahead. <laughs> sure. Um, but you know, to me, you know, George is the most arguably the most notable living person who's a survivor of the internment and is a working actor in our business i mean it it, it, it seemed uh, insane not to have him involved um, at least to make contact yeah uh and not only as a consultant but as a, 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 a as a performer in, uh, in in our show as well and what he brought to the show was uh was his own personal experience and his stories and there's several stories that uh he told about his memories of uh, of camp that uh, we put into our show the opening scene of the third episode is something that is uh, directly straight from his memory straight from his memory uh, some of the moments from episode two are uh, are from his memory as well as well as the memories of, of uh, a lot of people that uh, that that we spoke with but the other thing that he brought when the cast arrived uh, and it's not just George it's a number of people who had a personal connection to the internment was 
a, a real sense of the commitment and the deep personal connection and the, the, the passion for telling the story right and you know telling it in the most impactful way possible. So that atmosphere you know, permeated the entire production and everyone picked up on it. And really by the first couple of weeks, we were only maybe one or two weeks into production when everyone realized this is something special. Yeah. And that uh, allowed everyone to work a little bit harder, a little bit longer, sweat the details a little bit more because we, we did it in a very, very condensed time frame. It was, it was really, really quick. The production. The production itself was... Uh, you began was, in January, is that right? We started in January. So we shot uh, a little over 80 days, which okay. is eight days an episode, which is not a lot, yeah. you know? Uh, especially for a genre show and a period show and one that moves all over the place with tons of locations, it's really, really Yeah, tough. there's an expanding scope to the story oh, that yeah, you're it's telling a, It's as a well. movable feast. It goes from place to place to place from you know, in, in every episode. So that's, a, that, that's a, a huge challenge. So we needed and we got everyone's uh, personal commitment. And uh, I think that's one of the things that made the show uh, really, really special. The last thing I'll say about George is now you, you, you forget what a, a, a mesmerizing performer he is. It's not just the voice, you know. I mean, he, he fully inhabits that character so I, I you know that that also uh was uh, a great boon to our show it would be enough to be exploring the horror of this really shameful period in american history on top of that you are bringing in elements of uh ghost stories you know and and the supernatural is involved speak to that a little bit and and what you thought this series needed from that genre angle. I know that that's an important piece of the terror as the umbrella. How did you want to bake that into into infamy and drawing on Japanese mythology as well? Well, the, the fortunate thing for uh, for our purposes is that it's quite organic to the culture of the Issei generation. You know, these are the parents, the older generation who who came from Japan. The spirits are as real to them as you or I sitting here right now. It's Chester who doesn't believe in them, right. and yeah, he eventually is going to have to confront the fact that this is the, the, this is, the real this is pretty real. But in order to do that, he has to sort of confront his own Japanese-ness. He has rejected these old beliefs as uh, as backward and old country. He believes the internment's going to last a few days. You know, he's like, yeah. this is not this is not going to be that big That's of a right. deal, everybody. That's right. And and there's a lot he has to learn. It's a it's quite a journey for Chester. But thematically, that I think fits very well with with this uh, this divide this rift between generations that is such a part of uh, of the Chester Henry story. So tell me about some of the types of the, the, the types of creatures that we are seeing here. The clues that we have so far is a lot of uh, the, the breaking of the bones. It seems like potentially some some body hopping involved. What are some of the specific areas of uh, mythology that you're drawing on here that you feel comfortable sharing at this point in time? Well, early on, there's several Japanese words that are bandied about by our characters. They they say obake, bakemono, and yurei, and, uh, and they do that in part because they're not sure what it is. So obake is a very general term for spirits, which can be malevolent or benevolent. Bakemono is a little bit more demon, like shape shifting, a little right? more demon like, yeah. shape shifty. You know, more malevolent. But you're still not entirely sure what that is. A yure is specifically 
the spirit of a deceased person. So as opposed to some sort of non-human creature, it is the ghost of a person who has been wronged at some point in life and uh, is out to seek vengeance or hunger as a as an insatiable hunger uh for something and they're not entirely you know that would be the scariest of all but the, you know the, uh, there's there's a number of words that our characters use as they're trying to nail down what this thing well, there's or some theorizing are. amongst the there's characters there's a lot as well. of theorizing and it's and sometimes the supernatural things that are happening are uh, beneficial to uh to some of our characters you know when stan gets it in right. the first episode Oh, that's not because he was about so to destroy. About that. He was about to destroy Henry's boat, you know. Um, so w- w- when when some of these uh, things happen, we're not entirely sure of of, of the motives of uh, this uh, supernatural spirit or spirits. We're not sure how many there are even at the beginning, or what or who it is. So these are drawn from a well of folklore that goes back. Uh, hundreds if not thousands of years and we're very fortunate to have on our writing staff a harvard phd in japanese folklore right whose specialty is 10th century japanese folklore so yeah uh, how many of those are you going to find uh, yeah. uh, 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 when you're looking to put together your writing staff but they are are such an organic part of their uh, of the belief system of that generation that you know it, it becomes an integral part of the cultural story between those characters and Chester, who has to bridge the gap back to his Japanese-ness in order to be able to confront it. He has to, he has to accept it first, yeah. accept that it exists, and then confront it however he, uh, he chooses to. Additionally, I think one of the things that's so powerful about this are, you know, the notions of of, of family and, um, you know, fitting in within your own culture, breaking new ground for yourself as well. I think that through two episodes, it's dramatized really well between the relationships between Chester and his father, Henry, as well as Chester and the woman who is pregnant with his child, Luce. Uh, can you talk about those relationships and how central they are to what you're building out over the course of this season? Well, we, we start Chester... In- the early part of our series as someone who is uh believes himself to be all american you know he's he's got white friends you know he's got a mexican girlfriend that he you know he he recognizes that it's you know a little forbidden a little legal but he sees it as a as a possibility all things are possible to him all of america is accessible to him and uh, that's one of the reasons we you know gave him photography as an avocation you know through his lens he feels that he has the right to see all of America. Yeah. It's, it belongs to him, and he kind of ridicules his father for you know moving all the way from one island to an even smaller island and living in this tiny insular community where all they do is fish all the time and just keep to themselves. You know, America's so big, I have the right to it, and he embraces his Americanness so much. And he feels his father's just keeping his world so tight, so yeah. small. And then he realizes, of course, in, that America doesn't entirely embrace him back. So you know th- that's Chester at the at the 
very beginning uh, of the show. You know, he has uh, stayed very much on the American side of the Japanese-American part of the equation. And Luce is uh, similarly, you know, other. You know, she is uh, Mexican-American, and, uh, you know, we, we, we know what challenges are faced uh, today, but, you know, they're, they're the same as they were you know, uh, 75 years ago. Yeah. And you'll see as her story continues that uh, she is uh, continues to be an other in a climate where uh, even even when our Japanese Americans are otherized, she's otherized within that group of those who are otherized. So there's a bit of a sort of nesting doll structure with Luz's story. In terms of where you want us to be left at the end of the season, and we've got miles to go, weeks to go before we reach episode 10, and we are there on that night, uh, that Monday night when when the credits are starting to roll. But what do you hope we feel by the end of this journey? Can you speak at all to some of the the feelings that you hope to evoke in people, or even just some of the the takeaways? I think clearly that history repeats itself is a big theme here. Um, what What do you want us to be sitting with when the credits roll on the terror infamy? I hope that that the viewer gets the same thing that you would get from any series that you uh, have an engagement and an investment in, which is that you have agreed and accepted this invitation to go on this journey with these characters. And in this case, it's a journey of several years. And because we're telling a closed-ended story, we can spend all our bullets at the end. We're really, it's you know a beginning, middle, and an end. And at the end of this journey, it would feel like the end of a very long relationship, a friendship that you've developed with these characters. And if you have uh, come to care for them, then you have developed an empathy for these individuals. And then by extension, the plight of this immigrant group that had uh, thought of themselves as of this country until their own country told them they were not of this country. And then maybe by extension, you could connect the line, it's not very hard, to uh, similar immigrant experiences from that point in history all the way to the present day. Yeah. As we're releasing this podcast, we are days away from episode three of the Terror Infamy releasing out into the wild. Give us a tease. What are we getting into with episode three coming up? Well, if you've seen the end of episode two, it's probably no surprise that you're going to be at the camp. Right. And uh, we will get to see... Yeah, we, we, we recognize that there's going to be an entire spectrum of, uh, of viewers. There's going to be people whose families were in camps, or some people might have been in camps themselves. At the other end, there will be people who knew nothing about the internment, might not even knew that it happened. And we have a responsibility to everyone. Uh, We have responsibility for those whose families were incarcerated to tell the story respectfully and as accurately in detail as possible. And then for those who, uh, you know, on the other side, uh, we recognize this will be probably the first time they've ever had the chance to have a visual representation of the internment. So you're going to see a camp set that is, it's obviously, you know, built, uh, built for uh, the purposes of, uh, of making our show, but the scale of it, and you'll feel the humanity of, of, of the people who were uh, transported there. And that's, you know, it's just sort of the historical side. Um, there's a little hint at the end of episode two with that that shot of the flag that you know that whatever 
whatever thing that's been following them around has uh, has followed them there. And uh, I don't think that's any surprise that, you know, the spooky stuff continues. Yeah, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that episode three ends in a way that really chilled me (laughs) and had me very concerned for certain characters moving forward. So effectively done, sir. Well, thank you. Thank I'm glad you enjoy. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's important that, that people are engaged and entertained by it as well, because uh, that's our job is, is to, you know, build the relationship between, you know, the the viewer and the characters. And that's not just the writing by, by no means is it just the writing because all we do is write sheet music. It's, you know, the, 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 performances and the direction and the 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 design and the cinematography all make those uh, uh, you know characters come to life and uh, and if you come to really care about them then you know the end of that episode should be really really chilling upsetting (laughs) potentially alex thanks so much for coming on oh thank you so much that's it for this week's series regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television. Next week, we'll be focusing on Carnival Row, the new fairy tale noir thriller heading to Amazon on August 30th. Subscribe to Series Regular to make sure you don't miss that or any other episode. And send us an email at seriesregular at thr.com to let us know what you want to hear about next. Until next time, take care. <laughs> <laughs>